the bigger message is to share and inspire people to care about wildlife and conservation. And so I'm happy to do it if it means people fall in love with wildlife. Hey, Andy. Hello, Forrest. How are you? Pretty good. Love the background. Oh, thank you. It's just my office. Yeah, um, that's cool. <laughs> how you doing? Where are you? Sydney, Australia. Yeah, I figured that much. In Sydney? <laughs> uh, yes. Gotcha. Right on. Where are you based for us? Santa Barbara, California. Okay. You were born and raised in America? Nope. Born and raised in Africa, but I moved here when I was 14. Oh, wow. That's so cool. What's your week? Um, how, how's your week been so far? Uh, good. It's uh, a little busy. I take off tomorrow for a while. I'll be in Australia for about half of it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, just busy. A lot of prepping, a lot of final permitting type things, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's been it's been a little hectic. Very cool. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this. I've watched your podcast with Joe Rogan, big fan, um, followed your content uh, for the last probably three to four months and love what you do. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, it's fun, fun to fun to do what I do. That's for sure. <laughs> Glad you enjoy it. I guess we could jump right into it, please. Forrest, tell, sure. actually, yeah, tell me and the audience a bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, yeah, sure. So my name's Forrest Galante. I'm a wildlife biologist, uh, host of the Wild Times podcast, along with two of my buddies. And um, I am a wildlife biologist who travels the world working on critically endangered species, edge of extinction species, human wildlife combat, basically anything uh, sorry, combat, human wildlife conflict. I'm a little under the weather today. I apologize. Um, human wildlife conflict um, and basically anything to do with animals that need help or need attention, specifically wild animals and lesser known species, not so much the big cuddly ones, but some of the lesser known species. Tell me a bit about your upcoming trip. I know you're planning an upcoming trip. Tell me a bit about that. Uh, yeah, well, there's only so much I can say because the IP belongs to Discovery Channel. It's for Shark Week. Um, but I take off tomorrow and I'm gone until mid-April um, and I'm heading to two different locations. The first one is South Africa to study the various endemic species of shark that occur there. Um, and then I'll, after four weeks there, I have a couple days off, visit some friends because I'm from that area. And then uh, then I'm heading to Western Australia to Nigaloo Reef, um, Exmouth area, Coral Bay, to uh, look at the relationship between tiger sharks and sea snakes. Interesting. How long have you been researching and, and sort of learning about animals? Uh, learning about animals my whole life. I started working with wildlife when I was very young. Grew up on safari and safari camps with my family. Um, grew up on a farm when I wasn't on safari. So I've been around wildlife my entire life. Been around animals my whole life. As far as like formally educating myself on them and researching them, um, you know, I became a pretty pretty dedicated student in high school of, you know, advanced biology and things that are a little bit more academic and then uh, went to university for it and things like that. And so, yeah, just sort of kept going from there. Were you always creating content around this or did you start in research and it was funded by universities? How did you sort of, what was that journey like? Yeah, no, certainly not interested in creating content, still not interested in creating content, to be quite honest. I actually kind of despise it. But um, I uh, I started 
you know, as an academic, went down the, the path of becoming an academic biologist and publishing papers and working on research. And um, long story made very short, after years of work and publishing papers, I looked at the numbers that, you know, a published paper would get 400 reads or so by like-minded scientists who already knew the subject matter. And then I looked at media and, you know, some stupid TV reality show would get 4 million people looking at it. So I was like, all right, I don't think I'm going to make a big difference in uh, in academia, at least not with my skill set. And there are plenty of people that are far more skilled than I am as academics. But I didn't want to wait 50 years of going through those channels to become an influential academic. So instead, I decided to um, transfer into communicating conservation through television. Um, and that was a that was a long and slow process. Three years of uh, three years of taking rejections and getting no's and pitching stuff and people laughing in my face. And then finally, the first thing stuck. A couple years after that, I, I I got a pilot and the pilot was successful. That turned into a show. A couple years after that, I started a production company and have just uh, have been rolling since then. So, as far as like creating content, like putting things on the internet and doing social media and stuff, I really really don't enjoy it at all. Um, but the bigger message is to share and inspire people to care about wildlife and conservation. And so I'm happy to do it if it means people fall in love with wildlife. Has the angle been creating content to make people fall in love with wildlife so that they sort of do things that are more environmental friendly, less sort of deforestation? What has been the angle and, and sort of how will it sort of help there be less extinct animals? Uh, well, quite simply and frankly, the same way a zoo does, right? If you go to a zoo and you fall in love with wildlife as a kid, well, you might grow up to be someone who works on it, becomes a zookeeper, becomes a wildlife biologist or a zoologist or whatever it happens to be. And I get hundreds of messages every single day on my social media from people all ages, all different walks of life. Hey, you've inspired me to go to college. I've changed my major. Hey, you know, I'm volunteering at an animal shelter, I've decided to do a Knowles trip, or I've decided to do a GVI trip or something like that to contribute towards conservation. And so those hundreds of messages every day show how many people are, in, they, they don't even realize what their passion is until, uh, and I'm not saying I'm exclusively to thank, but until they start watching how much I enjoy it, and then they think, wow, I could enjoy that too. And so they get into wildlife conservation. Wow, that's so cool. With your show, like, how have you like what are the new ideas like what excites you how do you know what that next trip is how do you even come up with the next trip um yeah well i have a lot of shows so you know we don't do extinct or alive anymore uh, i'm not currently doing mysterious creatures right now i'm focusing on some of the shark con content i'm working on a very very large project that i can't talk about um but much bigger scale than anything i've ever done on discovery channel before um and so you know each one of our expeditions, one of the reasons our seasons were always so far apart and everything else is each expedition takes years of research, months of preparation, you know, months of planning and permits and logistics and things like that. And then uh, weeks in the field, if not months in the field. So, you know, most reality shows shoot an episode and we don't do reality. We do unscripted docufollow, but most TV shows, reality shows, they shoot an episode in like three to five days. Like the the shortest amount of time we've ever done is like two and a half weeks. And that was because we got lucky. So, you know, our shows were big, not were, our shows are high budget, 
very diff- logistically difficult shows, so it takes a long time to put them together. Are there ever situations where you put together, you planned everything, and you go to the destination, but you couldn't end up finding that animal you were looking for, or you couldn't sort of achieve that goal, and you're sort of in this tricky situation? Uh, yeah, almost every one of them. I mean, when you're doing something like looking for extinct species, you don't exactly find everyone you're looking for. Uh, you know, th- th- you can make plans for years and months and things like that. And pretty much the second you hit the ground, it all goes to shit. So you just have to come up with a new strategy and be adaptive and constantly work on changing and fixing things. So, yeah, I mean, that happens all the time, not to mention the injuries, the sicknesses getting robbed, getting thrown in jail, all the other stuff that's happened on our on our expeditions. That is insane. Like, how do you guys plan for, like, if, if you get thrown in jail, like, what do you do? Like, that last time you were thrown in jail, what happened? Uh, so the last time we got thrown in jail, uh, well, I shouldn't say thrown in jail. The last time we were held in custody was going into Mozambique. Um, and the reason being... They didn't believe one of our permits was valid. So we got held uh, in an office for two days about to get uh, with no bathroom, no water, no food, nothing. Um, We just got locked into this office in Maputo and being told that our permits were not valid for the work we had come to do. And the next flight back to the United States, they were putting us on. But fortunately, that was only once every other day. Um, And at the 11th hour, literally, as the other plane, the U.S. plane was landing that they were going to uh, chuck us out on, deport us on. Uh, the Ministry of Tourism, who we'd applied to our permits for, uh, came in and saved the day and said, what, are you, what the hell are you guys doing? And they let us out. So it was a bit of a kerfuffle, but we got there eventually. The other day I was reading this book um, on this guy named Mike Horn, this traveler, and he sort of traveled the Arctic Circle. Are there areas like far north of Russia or deep in the Amazon that we haven't, sort of been into and there's probably a bunch of undiscovered animals are there many hot spots like that or have majority of earth sort of been discovered no there's plenty um you know plenty's relative given the size of the planet but um you know there's no such thing as an uninhabited I- well there's plenty of uninhabited islands there's no such thing as an unexplored island anymore all the small islands have been explored but um Yeah, there's plenty of places deep in the Amazon with uncontacted tribes, Western Papua, parts of Papua New Guinea have never seen Westerners. I mean, I was in Myanmar a few years ago, and they'd they'd never seen Westerners. Uh, You know, there's quite a lot of places. They're they're small pockets. They're not the common everyday place, but there are small pockets of the world that are still very unexplored. Pockets in the Andes. Yeah, there's quite a few spots. Is that something that you sort of want to like sort of go into and, and sort of explore or is that sort of not too much of an interest? No, I mean, exploration is always really cool. I love going to places that others haven't been. I've been, I've been lucky enough in my career and life to have been to over a dozen places where, you know, I was the first person to ever go there. So that's always a really exciting thing, but I don't have much purpose for going to a lot of those places. I mean, it'd be nice to go places and discover things, but if if I'm going there and nobody else has been there, or at least very few Westerners have been there, odds are the habitat is still intact, the ecosystem's still very healthy, the trophic cascade as well. All of the species that inhabit it are are doing well. So there's not much purpose for me to go there. I usually go to places where 
there's a necessity for my work and my skill set. So we go somewhere to resolve a human wildlife conflict, or we go somewhere to, you know, mitigate a problem or find something that's lost so that it can be protected. So that's what we focus on primarily. It's not it's not just exploration for the sake of exploration. Well, I do enjoy that. And I've been very lucky to do that a number of times. I don't I don't target it as a specific thing. Now, if somebody said to me, hey, Manipaguri is in this particular area, you know, you got to go find this lost giant sloth, uh, <laughs> then I would be interested in going there, which is a species I've been working on for a number of years. And I believe that there might be a small potential of them. But at, that's so remote and so difficult. That's millions of dollars to go and do it. So that's on the back burner until there's, you know, more funding. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I love exploring. It's just, I, I go where I'm needed more than just where I want to go. Horace, does that mean you have like a bunch of different animals that you've spent years and years researching and they're sort of just sitting there until sort of evidence pops up and like you just have a lot of them lined up and if you get a lead for one of them, you jump on it straight away. Is that sort of how it works? Yeah, hundreds, hundreds, not just a lead, but it takes a lot of things, right? It takes funding. Uh, it takes, uh, there's just so many things that have to line up. I have to get the financing to be able to go. I have to have the information that says that that animal is currently there or at least recently been there so that we go and look for it. Um, you know, in the case of like the elephant translocation we did last year, they were like, if you don't come next week, we're going to kill all the elephants. So we, we got on a plane and we went and moved 24 elephants. You know, we did that in less than two weeks, but I had to secure nearly a million dollars, three helicopters, five cranes, uh, all of the boxes, all the transport, 75 staff, everything else in three weeks. But when you <laughs> you literally put a gun to the elephant's head, uh, I'm able to activate pretty quickly. So yeah, we, uh, we managed to make that work. <laughs> that is insane. Like when you're securing like a million dollars, is that from like sponsors for your show? Is that from TV networks, from university? Like who are you calling to sort of get this done? Sort of the government of like, of, of environmental? Uh, yeah, so we have to get permissions and permits from all of the various governments. We work with everybody you can imagine. So we get we get permits and, and permissions from the government, the national parks, the you name it, whatever their version of national parks is, whatever country that's in, the Ministry of Tourism, the Ministry of Defense, we get military, you know, everything. It's It doesn't make, make a difference. It's just every country is unique in its bureaucracy. So we just have to work with them to figure out what we need. But that doesn't give us funding. You know, typically, if not always, governments are substantially underfunded, especially when it comes to conservation work. So the funding is privately done. Uh, every now and then we get a donor or a sponsor, but 95% of the time, the only way we can fund it is by making a TV show out of it. So I then have to take it to these networks. Primarily, it's been Discovery Channel. It's been a great partner, but they're they're much less interested in that type of content these days. So um, that's making that that a little bit difficult. So yeah, so now I have to find various partners and people to pay for the work, um, and then we go out and do it. That's so cool. So for example, that sloth example, if you got a lead on on that sloth existing in, in somewhere, you'd call up a bunch of networks. We go like, hey, we found this super unique and, and one of a kind sloth we'd love to film a show around us sort of finding it and looking for it would you be interested in finding us that the process yeah i mean in a nutshell that's it you know you put together a whole presentation and you show the information and you know quite frankly about 10 five to five eight years ago when i started this those people would get excited about it but in today's climate you know network television is dying nobody watches tv anymore unless it's 
unless it's Netflix or a streamer, even those places are struggling. So just trying to find that funding, how you said it is exactly how it works, but there are far less people that are like, sure, how much do you need today than there were even six years ago? So we're doing a lot more privately funded stuff that never makes it to TV, but that's typically how we've, uh, how we've operated in the past. Interesting. Given that's the case, have you pivoted sort of the type of projects that you now go on because you have a much more sort of limited funding and limited amount of people that would say yes to things? Did that make you pivot your content in sort of research journeys and trips anyway? Um, not really. You know, if somebody doesn't want to fund the work that I don't want to do, I'm probably not going to do other work. I've been approached by everybody under the sun to host, you know, really stupid TV shows. And I won't name them because I'll throw networks under the bus. But things that I've been asked to host dating shows, I've been asked to be affiliated with, uh, you know, just terrible, terrible shows. And I, you know, if they offered me a million dollars, I'd say yes, because then I could put, you know, 950,000 of that into conservation work. But that's not what they offer you. You know, they offer to pay you peanuts in order to do these plug and play, like very stupid hosting shows that never make it more than a season or two. And so, uh, yeah, so I typically just turn it down. So my MO is for our company, because I, I actually own the production company that makes those shows, our company to create these shows and pitch them and sell them. And if the buyers don't want them, that's fine. We're not going to do the work as opposed to, you know, have somebody come to us and go, hey, do you want to do this really stupid thing that's wildlife or wildlife adjacent? And if I don't agree with it, ethically, financially, morally, any of it, I just, or if it just doesn't interest me, I just say no. When it comes to like conservation, like what is sort of has been the, the thing that probably sort of yield the biggest return? So because like, for example, um, Steve Irwin in Australia, like he used to just buy up large plots of land and then sort of like just buy land, I guess. What could you do to sort of help when it comes to conservation? Because it seems so difficult. Like you can't, there's not enough money in the world to just buy land and sort of protect it. Uh, so are you asking what I've done or what the average person can do? I guess both. Like what have you been doing that you found the most um, return in, in your investment when it comes to conservation and what can the everyday person do? Well, what we've done, like I said, is, is and I say we because it's not just me, but it's our entire team, is we've promoted a love of wildlife and conservation. And now hundreds, if not thousands more people than before are studying this field because they're excited by it. And so that's that's contributing in you know ways that we don't even know yet. Outside of that, obviously, we've found eight species previously thought to be extinct. We've extended national park boundaries. We've raised money. We've literally saved animals that have been slated for death like those elephants I mentioned, like, you know, crocodile, there was this man eating croc that ate 10 people that I went and caught and moved. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've literally saved a bunch of animals. But as far as like what, what the general populace can do, I think just awareness is the main thing. So once you're aware of stuff, you understand it. And that's the thing that most people don't seem to do under most people aren't willing to open their eyes and figure out what's going on. And so we do our best to communicate conservation of wildlife science in a very fun and ed entertaining way. And so that at least makes it enjoyable for the viewer because these like doom and gloom documentaries, you know, that are all about the world ending, nobody really wants to watch those. Um, they might be very good. Some of them are great. Sea of Shadows is an exceptional film, but it, you, you get done watching it and you feel like shit. So 
you know, we don't do that. We do much happier things and go, hey, look at this incredible planet and everything that's left. And that's also much more my personality. I'm not a doom and gloom person. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, uh, it's, you know, it's just a, it's an amalgamation of things. We do, we promote conservation. We spread the love of it. My company, Fantasticus Pictures, is the only production company in the world that I'm aware of that actively finances conservation work in exchange for access and filming rights. So we'll go to a place and say, hey, you need to, you know, trap and and relocate six spectacle bears. That's going to cost you guys $50,000. We'll pay that $50,000 in exchange for allowing me to come with, film it, host it, present it, so on and so forth. So we're, we're as opposed to taking a profit, which, um, you know, we still pay ourselves, but as opposed to like actually paying myself a lot of money, all the extra money we make on, on our productions, we put into conservation work. When you guys go ahead and rescue like the elephants or the bears, do you guys just sort of take them into like a zoo-like setting and sort of look after them and, and make sure like they can sort of continue breeding? Or do you try to somehow reintroduce them into like a different part of the world? Uh, well, not a different part of the world because we don't want to, you know, bring species that aren't supposed to be there there. But um, uh, we've done everything. It just depends. There's no such thing. And this is another thing that people that aren't invested in wildlife don't seem to understand. There's no such thing as a blanket answer for conservation. Everything's on a case-by-case -case basis. When we found fern, the Fernandina Island tortoise, which was the rarest, which is the rarest animal in the world, there's literally one of them that we know of, uh, we had to take her into a breeding facility in hopes of finding a male. She was malnourished. She was underweight. She was likely going to die had she been left where she was. And she's a tortoise. They, they thrive in captivity. I would never capture a wild elephant and move it into captivity. I think that's a fate worse than death for elephants. So instead, when we caught those elephants, we moved them to a massive national park with an incredible ranger patrol that was desperate for elephants to repair the ecosystem. And just because the elephants were in a human wildlife conflict zone. So we moved them 600 miles to a different national, well, not to a different, to a national park from just being rogue. So it just all depends on the situation. Everything is uh, situation dependent. In the future forest, is it like possible to like get bones of like, endangered species or even extinct species and artificially like re like recreate them is that possible yeah we're doing that already so i work with a company called colossal biosciences that's currently working on the de-extinction of the woolly mammoth the de-extinction of the thylacine and the de-extinction of the dodo and so we will have walking woolly mammoths on the planet in 2027 um and that's a very large tech company that's uh i'm i'm on their conservation advisory board um, so I'm really advising more on what to do with the animals once they're done being created. But yeah, no, de-extinction is in full swing right now for the first time in human history. So that means we could like recreate dinosaurs. So like Jurassic no, Park is real. Okay. It doesn't actually. So all what we can do is recreate species that have close living relatives that have been driven to extinction recently so that we can use the missing genomes to fill in so the missing genomes from the fragmented DNA of recently extinct species, we can use close living relatives. But DNA from an animal that's six or 60 or 600 million years old, like a dinosaur, is so deteriorated, there's no repairing it. It's one thing to take a double helix and be missing a couple little pieces and stick those pieces back in from an Indian elephant because they're closely related to a woolly mammoth or a quoll because it's closely related to um, a thylacine, Nicobar because it's closely related to a dodo. It's another thing to take super damaged DNA that's 6 million years old and try and build that from scratch. There's nothing to fill in the missing gap. So no, we're, we're not 
thankfully at a place where we can uh, build dinosaurs. But I'm sure in a few years, you know, AI is going to be like, hold my beer and watch this. So um, we'll see if that happens or not. But I think that's a very long way away from like reanimation of dinosaurs. And I also don't think that has any benefit to us or to wildlife to do something like that. So when you like find an animal that's similar, like the dodo bird and, and the animal that's similar to a dodo bird, would you create recreate the exact dodo bird from like hundreds of years ago or will it be like similar but different? I mean, it walks like a dodo and it talks like a dodo. You know, it okay. looks like a dodo. Um, every individual animal is different. You and I are different, right? We're not the same thing. So if you said, can you clone a human, whether they made you or whether they made I, they would still be human, right? And so even though you and I are very different, we have different color hair, different color skin, different shaped faces and legs and bodies and everything else. And so the short answer to that is, is it a perfect dodo? No, not really. It's used a couple tiny little pieces from the Nicobar pigeon to make a dodo. But at the same time, it's no different to making a human that isn't you or I and looks like somebody else. You know what I mean? It's just it's just a, a slightly different version of the same species. So and it, like I said, it looks like a dodo, talks like a dodo, walks like a dodo. It does all the things a dodo does. It's just use this close living relatives DNA in order to repair what's missing. Got it. And Forrest, would you know what the oldest animal is like like i heard something like the cockroach has is one of the oldest species is that true are there like species that are really old that has been like on earth for the last six hundred thousand years uh 600 million years yeah sharks i mean sharks predate trees sharks are older than the rings of saturn um sharks have been around longer than any other predator known to man there might be things older than sharks but sharks are their evolutionary branch stemmed off over 600 million years ago. So they're, like I said, they've sharks have been on the planet longer than trees have. So yeah, they're, uh, they've been around for a minute. So they're very, very old. How do scientists figure out that sharks are 600 million years old? Like, how do we find that out? That's a good question, actually. I, I, I guess from the fossil records and finding sharks from, you know, that error. But, you know, I actually don't know the answer to that. Uh, that's, that's sort of, that's not really anthropology, but that's like paleontology, which is not my field. I just know what's what's been dated. But yeah, I imagine from carbon dating fossils, you know, you find you find a uh, a lasmobranch, which is the genus of shark fossil that's 600 million years old and date it and go, holy crap, this is a shark from 600 million years ago. Now, they wouldn't look the same as the sharks we have today. They'd be different species, but they're still sharks. And did sharks used to be much, much bigger and did all animals in general used to be much, much bigger long time ago or? Yeah. Uh, no, not really. I mean, the blue whale is the largest creature that's ever graced the earth, period. You know, nothing's ever been bigger than the, the blue whale, which exists currently. Uh, you know, during the Pleistocene, we had a lot more megafauna, especially here in North America. Like there was a lot more big animals, giant sloths, giant bisons, giant camels, giant tigers, woolly mammoths. But it doesn't mean that animals were bigger as a whole. There was just different diversity of species. Now, it's pretty fair to say that during the era of dinosaurs, most of them were larger. But there were tiny little dinosaurs, too, just like just like we have everything from ants to elephants today. So um, it's not necessarily that there was a time period where all animals were larger. It's just sort of different over different uh, time periods, different different. Uh, what would you call it? Sort of ecosystem ranges throughout different time periods of history interesting 
like I was like watching I was going through like a YouTube rabbit hole and I heard how like earth as a whole we've been through so many ice ages like like Antarctica used to be like grass and greeny like is it possible that like there's like a frozen undiscovered animal somewhere in Antarctica Oh, definitely. Probably tens, if not hundreds of them of undiscovered species. But that's not like some movie where you electrocute it and it comes back to life. That's going to be the remains <laughs> of something locked, locked in ice. But yeah, the whole of the Arctic used to be savannas and grasslands filled with megafauna. It didn't used to have ice covering it. Um, and one of the reasons for that was because mammoths were there. And the mammoths used to crush the permafrost and keep the ground colder. And there just used to be much less ice and much more uh, grassland vegetation. Interesting. Coming from like Australia, like I heard, I read somewhere that like the reason why we have all these unique animals that are so different and not seen in other continents is because we've just been this island secluded for so long. Like why does Australia have these crazy like emus and like koalas that are so unique and there's nothing similar in other continents? Uh, yeah, it's due to a process called convergent evolution. So what happened was Australia branched off from australasia whatever pangaea whatever big large chunk of land it branched off from however many millions of years ago and the animals that evolved there did not evolve to be the same animals we have so most of the rest of the world was some somewhat connected europe to africa and north america to south america so on and so forth and australia stood alone and was a very large landmass. so instead of uh developing a large diversity of mammals which is what the rest of the country rest of the world has developed it developed a large uh diversity of marsupials which is a type of mammal but you know it's it's whole, it's its whole own thing and so australia got all of these endemic unique creatures and you know quite frankly almost everything you find in australia doesn't occur anywhere else yeah have you done any work with david attenborough like i remember watching his documentary he's like by the time you finish watching it you're like wow like you, you feel inspired and you feel like you want to save the planet and, and i can sort of see what you're talking about how documentaries can really motivate a lot of individuals worldwide uh yeah i've had a few phone calls with him but um no i've never actually worked with him directly uh you know he's he's getting up there in the years. He's still, in my opinion, the most impactful man in wildlife conservation media in history. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think he's personally doing a lot anymore as far as like on the ground filming and things like that. I don't really know though. And I, I certainly don't want to say anything discrediting towards him or negative towards him because he's an absolute like legend in my mind. Um, but no, I've never worked with him. I've just had a couple phone calls with him and his people a couple different times. That's so cool. But when yeah. it comes to your company, Forrest, um, like, pardon me, when it comes to your company, um, how do you sort of like, 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 what is it like? Because there's like the research side of things. There's like the reaching out to sort of pitching shows as the actual filming. There's the actual planning of sort of the next sort of project. Like, like, how do you sort of organize all these many different parts? Uh, well, there's a reason I look like hell half the time and I'm so tired and I never sleep. Um. But yeah, no, look, we're, um, we're not a huge company by any means, but everybody has to wear a lot of hats. And there's a lot of components to it from, like I said, from the funding, the creation, the TV shows, the pitching, the research, uh, then we have to have a whole legal department, we have to have a whole uh, permits department, you know, we have to have human resources, HR department, like the whole thing. So yeah, we're, we're we've grown into a full fledged business, that's for sure. And like I said, we're not huge, but we're big enough that, um, it's very unique and, and and we're very unique 
because there are lots of production companies in the world, but they don't put in the time and effort into conservation that our company does, right? They, they, they're very happy to go film something or make a reality show or whatever, but they're not actually being like, all right, where can we give our tiny bit of money that we make to? And how are we vetting that? And how do we get the ability to tell a story around giving that money to a conservation organization so that they also get exposure and not just, you know, a donation. And so that takes a lot of work and a lot of facilitating. And um, I'm still at a point in my career where I have to see over, I have to oversee every single aspect of that. There's no, uh, there's no one person or, or handful of people that can take care of big chunks of it. I still have to do all of it. That is crazy. Yeah, I could definitely feel that. When it comes to like leads and, and updates on different species that you've been sort of following, how do they come into you? Do people just know that, hey, Forrest would be interested in this new news we discovered, let's send him an email? Or are you following a bunch of message boards or a bunch of sort of universities and following the papers they release? Yeah, so in the beginning, it was us frantically digging for information and like researching in every black hole and corner and library and museum and zoo basement that you could think of and it, in the beginning it was also pretty much just me and sometimes my girlfriend um now we have three researchers on the staff and so their full-time job is to research these things but it's also the dynamics changed a lot i would say in the beginning it was 100 percent us digging for information like 130 percent us digging for information now it's probably 70-30, where 70% of the information comes to us through social media, through website, through whatever, where people ping me up or ping up our company and go, hey, I saw this thing. Can you check out this video? Or, hey, I caught this on my phone. Or, hey, my uncle says he shot one of these things or whatever it happens to be. And then our research team follows up on all these leads and vets them to see if they're credible, you know. A lot, ninety-nine percent of the time, they're nonsense, right? Like some that people don't know what they're talking about, or what they've seen is nonsense, or, or it's just a case of general mistaken identity. I did a show on the ivory-billed woodpecker, and uh, you know, came to the conclusion that it's it's most likely extinct from North America, and then had thousands and thousands of people send me cell phone videos of pileated woodpecker, which looks a lot like ivory build woodpecker being like i saw that bird you're looking for and i'm like no you didn't you know that's not it so our poor researchers like liam who's a sort of in charge of that department he has to go through all of those thousands of videos and go oh my god another pileated woodpecker um so yeah anyway it's it's sort of a bit of all of it but uh you know it's it's yeah it's definitely changed a lot um in in the recent years are there sort of any like larger than life animals like loch ness bigfoot that like there's quite a decent amount of leads you're following and this potentially might exist uh yeah there's a the, you're talking about just big sort of kind of like cryptid animals right yeah yeah well i'm not interested in bigfoots and loch ness monsters not even a little bit but um i am interested in large animals that have formed legends about them because of their likely ongoing existence and i mentioned Manipaguri earlier, which is in reference to the Megatherium, which is a giant ground sloth that likely, well, not likely, it only went extinct about 4,000 years ago, maybe six, I forget the timing, but not that long ago. And certain tribe that I won't mention, and certain people still report seeing them very, very frequently. Uh, I have another group down in, down in the Amazon in Peru uh, that I've just 
I'm working on the logistics of sending them 60 trail cameras because the entire tribe, no Westerners go in there and the entire tribe constantly and all the tribes in the region, not just them, mention this large hoofed animal grazer that doesn't match any description of anything we know. So if I can get 60 trail cameras in there, we might find a whole new large animal species that the world doesn't even know exists. What's that process like? Do you like send the cameras to like someone that can speak English that is nearby the Amazon and they communicate with the tribes and they give the tribes all these cameras to where is that the process? Pretty much. I mean, again, it's it's individual based on the situation. And, you know, you give you give a tribe a bunch of trail cameras, they're not exactly going to do a great job. Right. And that's not a dig at them. It's just they don't know anything about cameras. Most of them have never even seen a camera. Like they don't know buttons don't mean anything to them, right? To turn an on and off button or put batteries or change a card. Like if you can imagine how foreign and alien that is to someone who's never worn shoes in their life or someone that spends their entire life hunting and gathering, that's pretty foreign. So we typically do it all ourselves. Like we're on the ground in the locations doing it ourselves. Um, but what we're doing with this Amazon thing that I just mentioned and a couple other projects that we're just starting on now is we're going to send someone down there who's already embedded, ingrained with the community, like basically whoever the translator is, and try and get them up to speed with how to operate the cameras with a team of the local people that we that we trust will be able to figure it out. So as opposed to like a five minute, here's how you do it and dump it, they go and like spend a week with them and do it every day and show them the kind of signs and places to place cameras and the kind of angles and how to do it. And we're hoping that that'll be successful. But you know, whether it will or won't be only time will tell. My guess is it won't be for the most part, but it doesn't, it only needs to be for a little bit to be a, a big success scientifically. How did you even come out like about that news? Like how did it come to you that, Hey, these tribes in Amazon have been citing these hooved animals. Like they don't even speak English. Uh, yeah. Through, through my website, like I said, people come to us. So this, uh, this old German guy who's an anthropologist, who had been going, who's been going down there for the last 60 years, 50 years, um, is like, hey, you know, I go down there once a year for a couple of weeks. And this tribe is my study group. You know, I, I've studied them from an anthropological side. They've hunted everything while I've been there. You know, they've hunted peccary and they've hunted tapir and they've hunted blah, 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 blah. And they all describe this animal and they've shown me footprints and it doesn't match anything. And, you know, what do you think it could be? And I'm like, I don't think it could be anything. And so they sent me pictures of the foot, you know, I don't think it'd be anything that we know of. So they sent me pictures of the footprints and told me all these stories. And so, uh, you know, it's not a lot to me to go to one of our sponsors who gives us trail cameras and send 60 trail cameras and be like, Hey, can you give us those trail cameras? We're going to send them to South America. We're probably never going to see them again. Right. Maybe we'll see 10 of them again if we're lucky, but it doesn't really matter as long as we somehow can get the footage. Also, these cameras will last, you know, sometimes up to six months. So if we can pay this guy, this this older German gentleman to go down there the next time he's going for his anthropological study, spend a week explaining how to do it with the translators and everything else, send all of the hunters from the tribe into the forest to place cameras. And then even if they leave them for a year and go back the next year and pick up the cameras they can find, God knows they won't find all 60, but maybe they'll find 20 or 30 or 40 and bring them back then we can see what's happened in a year, you know, and the cameras will die for sure. They won't last that long with batteries or cards, but the footage will sit on them until they're collected again. Interesting. And has like, what stopped that German man from getting like clear photos himself? Is it like he hasn't been able to 
go out with the hunters because he might not be able to keep up with them? Like, how come he hasn't gotten any photos that might show some small evidence that this may exist? Yeah, well, first of all, it's not his field of study. You know, he's an anthropologist. He's there to study the people and the culture. And he just told me about this because he thinks there's something interesting there. And uh, secondly, I just don't think, you know, I don't think he has the resources to do it. Like in order to do those things, uh, you need cameras, you need dedicated time, you need money. You know, most people don't just go, all right, cool. I'm going to, I'm, I've been paid. I'm going to go on my own dime to this very remote, uncomfortable place, stay here for weeks at a time and try and document something. So it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of effort to get shots of these things. And, you know, if it is a really elusive creature, it's even harder to do. And so that requires a skill set of filming these really rare animals. So yeah, it's, it just takes a lot of work. That's all. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. The reason I brought it up is like, I think I was watching this Joe Rogan podcast with a guy named David Cho. David Cho was telling a story about how he sort of went to Tanzania in, in South Africa because he heard that there was reports of these giant, this, this big sort of dinosaur with this long neck. And when he went there, he would show images to the tribes and every, everyone in the tribe was like, yeah, we've seen that dinosaur. But then he, he, you know, wasn't able to find it. But I was watching that Vice um, documentary on, on that situation. It was just fascinating. Yeah, you know, and the problem is with guys like David Cho, and this is not a dig at him. He's a very cool guy, but he didn't grow up in that kind of environment. And so you have to understand that with a lot of primitive peoples, the separation between lore and reality is a very gray area. You mm -hmm. know, if your grandmother and your great grandmother and, and your mother and so on and so forth has always told you that this long necked dinosaur exists, then in your mind, it exists. And you keep in mind, these are people that are cut off from the outside world. So for the most part, right? So they don't watch TV that discredits stuff and read news stories that goes Bigfoot's fake and shit like that. And so to a lot of these people, and I've encountered this, this isn't a dig at David Cho, I've made the same mistake many, many times. But when I hear that story, what I hear is somebody who went there naively and showed pictures and everybody said yes, and it was believed because to them, it's believed that that animal's real, you know, and they've probably seen it in their dreams and they've seen it in spirit, in spiritual sort of awakening moments. And uh, and to them, it is a very real creature, but it doesn't mean that it's physically real. And those are the, that that um, sort of cultural element. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Spiritual element is something that we as Westerners don't really understand at all. And I don't care who you talk to. I grew up in Africa, so I'm a little bit more connected to it, but I still don't really understand it. Still don't really understand the distinction between, you know, mythology and reality and how certain tribal people see them as one and the same. And, um, you know, so when I hear that story of, of David Cho doing that, and again, this isn't a dig at him because I've made the same mistake. I hear him sort of being fooled by people who think that something's real because they've been told about it for so long and because it's part of their culture to believe in things that they were passed down from their ancestors versus no, no, I've killed one of these things and eaten it with my uncle, you know, like, no, I chopped its head off and we actually physically ate it and its skins on the wall back there. You know, that's different. And that's the problem is differentiating that. And I've seen that with everything from thylacine to sloths to crocodilians, you name it. I've seen it with everything where that gray, there's a real gray area between the actual physical reality and the spiritual reality of a creature. That makes so much sense. That, that, that makes total sense for us. Last thing I'd love to ask you about, because yeah, you've recently been getting into sharks. Tell me about the recent fascination with sharks, you know? It, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not super recent. I, I've, uh, I, when I came, when I moved to California from Zimbabwe, when I was 14 years old, I was looking for an outlet with which to be more connected to nature because California is very tame. It's uh, it's pretty bland overall when it comes to wildlife. But then I found the ocean and I was only 14 at this time, but I found the ocean, which has huge white sharks and seals and sea lions and all these other various, very interesting species. And it felt much more like the wilds of Africa than, you know, walking around the redwoods did. And so that made me fall in love with the ocean more so than ever when I when I was about 14, even though I'd already sort of been enamored with all the creatures in it. And then, uh, you know, followed that. My my degrees in college were in herpetology and marine biology, so I was very interested in in marine biology. And um and then yeah, I did my first Shark Week show about eight years ago, seven years ago. I forget what it was now, and I've done one or two every year since that have been very very successful. And uh, so we continue to do these really interesting shark shows, and those are those are really a lot more just about fun and entertainment. You know, they have some very good science, like we filmed the first ever. Uh, epaulets in Papua New Guinea walking out of the water and we uh we've done some very cool things we found some lost species of sharks four of them actually that nobody else had seen so we've done some very impactful things but shark week's sort of a stunt you know it's like a fun stunty like super bowl like week of animal tv so we don't do the real stupid ones like the celebrities singing to sharks or celebrities <laughs> pretending to race sharks and shit like that we do ones with real science behind them but um those are sort of they're far from a vacation because they're exhausting and I get a, an injury almost every one, but those are sort of like almost just for fun. <laughs> How do you go like about spotting a new shark? Like I've done diving. I've dived at a few spots around Australia um, and New Zealand. And when I'm down there, when I see sharks, like they all look the same to me. Some of them might have different shapes. Some of them might have different colors. But when you sort of discover a new shark, it, you know, I'm, I've seen the ones on your Instagram, they look very similar to other sharks. Like, how do you, do you just have a good eye? You've seen every variation of sharks and you're like, yep, that's a new one. Uh, how do I answer that? I mean, do you have dogs? Uh, no, but I've, I have friends with dogs. Do you grow up with dogs? No. Okay. Irrelevant. <laughs> if you go to a buddy's house, who's got three great Danes, they all look the same to you. Right. And he's like, this is fluffy. This is scruffy. And this is stuffy over here. Right. And that's because he lives with those dogs. He knows those dogs. Those dogs do not look the same to him. I think that same can be said for any species that are studied by anyone. So, you know, I, I've studied uh, sort of everything, you know, I've studied a ton of sharks and to me, they don't all look the same. That makes so sense. I was at like an alpaca farm and the alpacas sort of people who work there sort of knew the names of every single alpacas and they look all the same to me. So that makes exactly. sense. Exactly. That's a better maybe analogy than the dog analogy. But yeah, same same thing. Thank you so much for your time, Forrest. I really appreciate it. Where can people find more about you, like learn more and sort of follow you on your journey and sort of follow you along on your mission? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this and you like banter and silliness, check out our podcast, The Wild Times Podcast. Um, yeah, otherwise, uh, otherwise, I'm on all the regular social media things, you know, Instagram, I even have TikTok now, even though I don't understand it, and uh, Facebook and Twitter and all that crap. And, you know, I'm on TV a lot. If you turn on Discovery or Animal Planet, you're probably going to see me on your television. So any of those places are good places to find me. Thank you so much for your time, Forrest. I really, really appreciate it. Like I could see how passionate you are about sort of animals. This is something that you literally dedicate your life to and you really love and you sort of have this sort of wealth of knowledge. And I could definitely see like 
how far you've been pushing yourself by taking on all these different sort of roles just to really push the mission. So you're really, really working really, really hard to sort of push your mission of conservation. And I could just feel that. Um, and I'm really appreciative of you as a person and what you're sort of doing in your mission because you're really giving it your all. And I could feel that. My pleasure, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, guys. If you guys made it this far, thank you so much for watching the podcast. I really, really appreciate and value your time. Please drop me a review on Spotify and Apple. I've been reading all the reviews. Would love to get your thoughts. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for the time, guys. I'll see you guys next week with another episode. Peace.